Give me Jesus. And we come to the tail end of it now. Colossians chapter 4, picking things up in verse 15. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus in the church that is in his house. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, uh, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. And if you just turn a couple pages to the left, I'd like to read another, another section of, of Colossians, beginning in chapter 1, verse 9. Colossians 1, verse 9. For this reason we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven, and are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this book of Colossians, and as we come now to the final verses of it, we pray that every thought and intent behind your word and every single thing that you have desired to accomplish in our lives and in our relationship with you through this book that it will be accomplished. We surrender to you for that. And we ask this morning for this work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Paul closes this letter now by, as he is Uh, previously looking at his clothes where he's sending uh, greetings from those that are with him in Rome to the various people that are there in uh, in Colossae. And now he moves to his own personal greetings. And in verse 15, he requested that uh, the church there, uh, members in the church of Colossae, that they would greet uh, the uh, brethren in Laodicea as well as Nymphus and the church that is in his house there. 
It is uh, interesting to realize that it wouldn't be until the third century of the early church that Christians would meet in buildings like this or buildings that were set aside completely for Christians to gather to worship the Lord, that previous to that, uh, all churches met in homes. In verse 16, Paul requested that each of the letters that, uh, that he wrote to Colossae and to Laodicea would be read in both churches. And so each church, each letter to each church had something to say to the other church in the same way that today we read these New Testament letters or New Testament epistles with the same uh, earnestness. We realize they were written to a church uh, addressing with spe specific things, but they are uh, advantageous for us and our uh, spiritual growth and our relationship uh, with the Lord. He further went on in verse 17 and requested that they would deliver a personal exhortation to a man by the name of uh, Archippus. And the, the exhortation is a firm one. Paul writes, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. One of a couple things could be happening in Archippus' life. He might have just lost his, his edge. It's uh, easy to... Uh, Archippus was, as we would read the book of Philemon, uh, look at it, and he very likely was the son of Philemon and also kind of the pastor of the church that met in that house. And pastors can lose their edge and, uh, and, and their full commitment of their lives to what God has called them uh, to do, so maybe it's that kind of an exhortation. You look at it, and you might imagine on maybe a Sunday night as this letter is being read and the whole church is present, and then Paul makes this personal comment to Archippus at the end. He said, wow, that, that's tough to sit through, but I don't think that Paul would have spoken it. He certainly didn't to be uh, severe. If he was address, addressing a fault in Archippus' life, it would have been something that was apparent really to everyone else already, and, and uh, Paul addressed it in that way. It is also possible that this is just simply an encouragement by the Apostle Paul uh, to Archippus as, as the leader and the head of that church uh, to stay encouraged in the midst of all of the false doctrine, all of the false teachers that had infiltrated it and to stay in the saddle. Uh, don't you quit. They're, they're the ones we're trying to get rid of, not you. And uh, let this letter have its full work, but, but you stay focused on what God has called you uh, uh, to do. And uh, so we don't know exactly what it is that Paul was addressing in Archippus's life, but it is always helpful, no matter what our ministries are, and every Christian is called to minister in some area, uh, to take that verse 17 and insert our own uh, name in there this morning. Uh, lest we've fallen asleep in our service to the Lord or become uh, discouraged to the point of wanting uh, to quit and to say to, instead of our chip is put our name in there, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. And then in verse 18, Paul closes with uh, his uh, blessings 
and he, uh, having what he's done with this letter, he's done with other letters. He dictated the, the full content of the letter to a male secretary that was with him, and then he wrote that out. And then what Paul would do is that he would then uh, write the final couple greetings of a letter and then sign his name to it. And so that's what he's, uh, he's doing here. He asked that they remember his chains, that is his imprisonment, and surely that is includes the idea that uh, don't forget about me, keep me in your prayers, and then he commended them to God's grace. And God's grace is uh, greater than any need any church will ever face, uh, any need that any individual will face. It's in, and so he, uh, even with all of their problems, he commends them to the grace of God, knowing that uh, God's grace will prevail. Uh, in, in their midst, and so ultimately um, it did. Well, there we finished, and um, that's my first five-minute sermon. <clears throat> and uh, some of you will want a, a, record, a recording of that, uh, just for the fact that it happened. But I, what I, I want to do here this morning is, for us having spent a number of months uh, studying this epistle together on Sunday mornings, I'm just not in the mood to, to bid it a, a speedy uh, goodbye and then just move on to the next thing and then we almost forget, uh, y- you know, what it is that the Lord has spoken to us uh, here. And so I want to say goodbye to the epistle this morning with you by means of partaking of the Lord's Supper and, and then as a meditation for partaking of the Lord's Supper, reconsidering the central theme of the epistle. When I gave the, the, um, the title to this series going through the book of Colossians of uh, Give Me Jesus, it's for a reason. And it's because uh, the book of Colossians is all about uh, Jesus in a very, very extraordinary way. It is said of the book of Colossians that it's the most Christ-centered epistle in the New Testament. That would be very, very hard to argue with. Uh, uh, the, the only letter that I can think of that, you, that would be on a par would be uh, the book of, of, of Hebrews. But the theme of the book is, is a very, very simple theme. It drives home the supremacy of Christ. It drives home uh, the, the uh, preeminence of Christ. It drives home uh, the sufficiency uh, of Christ in uh, the Christian life. And that is that He is superior to everything else in the world and that He has provided us with all that we need uh, spiritually. In other words, that the Christianity that Jesus has provided to us does not need any improvement. Uh, not by a collection of men and women, not by an individual man or woman. It simply cannot be improved upon. There's nothing better than it that can be found out there. We don't need anything else. And as we've seen, the false teachers in the church were advancing uh, all of their ideas that Christianity can somehow be improved upon by human philosophy or by legalism or by pseudo-spiritual, extra-biblical uh, spiritual experiences or by asceticism. And how Paul chose to refute those things as he wrote this letter is very, very instructive, as we've seen. 
He didn't take and deconstruct on a a human level or a philosophical level uh, the weakness of human philosophy or the weakness of legalism or the weakness of asceticism. He didn't do that. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. What he did in the letter was he simply exalted Christ in the letter from one end to the other. He exalted the Christianity that Jesus has provided to mankind and then simply put it up against all of these theories and ideas and hopes of improving uh, Christianity that these false teachers had brought in and then putting the two side by side. It was clear that these things have nothing to add to the Christianity that Jesus has uh, provided to us. And thus the central theme, as I've said, of the book is the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, and the centrality of Christ. I think that so often we look at a church and, and uh, maybe the church that we belong to or church in general, and we say, well, uh, depending on what our kind of emphases are in our own life, that the church, is uh, 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 what it's about is it's about missions or it is about prayer, or it is about Bible study, or it's about fellowship. And it is about all of those things. But it is about all of those things in a secondary way. Uh, The church is about Christ. It is about Him. He is the head of the church. He is what this is all about. He is supreme over uh, all. He has the preeminence over all. He is to be central over all. And when Paul talks about the supremacy of Christ and that uh, beginning there in verse 12 in chapter 1, uh, as we again prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper and uh, in doing so, in partaking of the symbols of His body and His blood, doing it in, remember of him, in remembrance of Him in order to prime the spiritual pump of our heart, I'd like us to remember the depth and the beauty of the Holy Spirit's description of the supremacy of Jesus that's given to us in this letter. And to just look at it all on its own. Not talking about the supremacy of Christ in contrast to human philosophy or to legalism, uh, or to pseudo-spiritual experiences, or asceticism. But to set all that by the side and just look and say, what did Paul tell me about my Savior and the supremacy of Christ in this letter? And he tells us in verse 12 that it is through Jesus Christ that God the Father has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Now that's a mouthful when Paul says something like that, and you can read it like I can and say, what in the world does that mean? And what Paul is saying is that he, that is Jesus, has made a way for us to be fit for the environment of heaven, to one day enter into the glory of heaven through faith in Jesus for that salvation. And that took some doing to accomplish. Every single one of us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all of us hopelessly unqualified to 
ever enter into the glory of heaven, and it is only Jesus in his sacrifice that has fitted us and equipped us uh, for heaven. Paul goes on in verse 13 and tells us that it is through Jesus that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. And what Christ has done is he's done two things at once. He has delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness, even as we have sung. And he, but he didn't stop there. That's only half of what he has done. If that was all he did for us, I would take it because beggars can't be choosers. But he delivered us out of that kingdom of darkness and then he delivered us into the kingdom that is ruled by the Son that God loves, that is Jesus himself. And that is quite an accomplishment for us. Notice in verse 14, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, by his own blood, Jesus, and when you see blood in the Bible, it refers to his life. It's not just his blood. He gave his life, and in doing so, he paid the price for the forgiveness of our sins. And it is only that sacrifice and that sacrifice alone in all of human history allows God to be the forgiver of sinful man and remain righteous in doing that. He goes on and describes in verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God. That is, the very nature and character of God the Father has been perfectly revealed to us in Jesus. It is through Jesus that we're able to know what God the Father is like. And the reason that this is huge for us is encapsulated in that word invisible to describe God the Father. The problem that we face in fully getting to know God the Father what he is like and so forth is that he is invisible. He is fully spirit. He doesn't have physical uh, attributes. And because of that, he is very, very hard for us as physical beings to come to know or to understand. And as a result, Jesus, being God the Son himself, provides us with the ultimate and the perfect answer to the question, what is God like? He is exactly like what we see and who we see in Jesus. Paul goes on in verse 15 and declares of Jesus, He is the firstborn over all creation. And this speaks of Jesus' absolute authority over all of creation. And Paul uses Old Testament language here in order to convey the point. The firstborn in a family, in, the, in an Old Testament family, ultimately uh, possessed the ultimate authority within that family and over that family. And Paul is saying that what is true of the firstborn in a family in the Old Testament is true of Jesus over all creation. He has absolute authority over it. 
Paul goes on to say in verse 16, by him all things were created. That is, he is the origin of all creation. He is the person of the Godhead through whom the creative act was performed. And without exception, everything owes its existence to Jesus. As Paul says, whether visible, whether the material world, and universe around us, all that we can see with the naked eye, all that we can see with a telescope, all that we can see with a microscope, and beyond. And then Paul says, whether things not only visible, but whether invisible, speaking about a very real spiritual realm that is around us, as real as anything that we see in the physical realm, speaking about uh, thrones and dominions and principalities and powers, talking about the entire uh, angelic realm. And this truth speaks to the glorious fact that Jesus is eternal. He is like God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in this regard. John, when he wrote, the Apostle John, when he wrote his gospel, he began the entire gospel with these words, reinforcing the same truth. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. And all of this speaks to us of Jesus' power. And for us to stop and to realize that that is who died on the cross at Calvary. That is the one who died, the one who uh, took and has created all things. I don't know what you're like, but when I think about my relationship with Jesus, when I think about Jesus himself, and I suspect that you're much like me, but sometimes it takes a list of what Paul lays out here to prime uh, the pump in my life or to remind me of aspects concerning Jesus that aren't always at the forefront of my mind. When I think about Jesus and my relationship with Him, I, I think of Him supremely as my Savior. I think of Him as my Lord. I think of Him uh, as my friend. But, it, but, I, but I rarely think of Him as the creator of the heavens and, and of the earth. And to realize that is the one who died on the cross in order to provide me with the forgiveness of sins. Paul goes on in verse 16 and declares that all things were created through him and uh, for him. Not only was everything created through him, but everything was created for him. And this is what this would end the search for everyone in the world, the search for uh, truth and the meaning uh, of life. And, and, and because we have been created supremely created for a relationship with God. Until we are engaged in the relationship that we have been created for, there will always be an emptiness in our life. There will always be a sense that there must be something more to life than I have experienced. And the hopes that people put in that if I just buy this thing, this vehicle, whatever big purchase it might be, or if I just get a relationship like this, 
or I achieve this kind of success in life, that finally that sense that there must be something more to life, that sense that somewhere I'm going to find satisfaction and meaning and be satisfied, uh, and the hopes that this next thing will do it, and, and then the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, and it never does, because this is the only thing that will do it. Only what we've been created for and engaging in that thing will bring true satisfaction uh, to our lives. Paul goes on in verse 17 and says, uh, He is before all things. That is, Jesus is eternal. Jesus is self-existed. He uh, existed before any created thing existed. And of course, that only makes sense that being before all things is a requirement for having created all things. Paul goes further, and he says in verse 17, in him all things consist. That is, he holds everything together. Jesus not only created all things, but he now maintains the universe. He sustains the universe. All of it is completely dependent upon him. And to realize that we, when he hung on that cross to provide us with the forgiveness of sins, he held that cross together by his own will. He held those nails together. He held the soil in which that cross was planted in. He held that together. He held the entire universe together as he hung upon that cross because he, in him, all things consist. And to realize that this is our Savior as well as Paul presents him uh, to us and his supremacy Who compares to this? What compares to this in the whole world and in human history? Paul isn't done. He goes on in verse 18 and says he is the head of the body, the church. And the church, as he uses it here, refers to every single Christian that exists in the entire world. And Paul likens us here to us as Christians to the body of Christ of which Jesus is the head. In other words, just as a human body is in subjection to or in control of uh, the head and, and the human body is the means by which a person expresses themselves, so too as Christians, Jesus is our head. The body of Christ is the means by which Jesus uh, expresses himself in the world all around us. And so he guides the church. He directs the church. He controls the church. And so often when Paul talks about the body, the imagery of the body to us as Christians, uh, virtually always he talks about it in terms of our own relationship to one another and how to maintain a healthy relationship uh, with one another. But here he communicates the total dependence of the church on Christ for its very survival. He goes on to say in verse 18, he is the firstborn 
from the dead. Not that he is the first to rise from the dead. People rose from the dead in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but it was God who raised them. Jesus raised himself from the dead, and he is the most prominent person to have ever risen from the dead. He's the firstborn, Paul tells us, from the dead in the sense that his resurrection demonstrated his authority over death. It constituted a final victory over death, a victory that he imparts to everyone when we will make him our Savior and come into a relationship with him as he imparts everlasting life into our lives. And Paul says in verse 19, uh, in him the fullness dwells. Speaking of the deity of Christ, the fact that he is God. Speaking of his equality with God the Father. Well, that's a mouthful from the pen of the Apostle Paul uh, that that is Jesus' unique supremacy in human history and in all of creation uh, 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 above anyone and anything else. What a description of him. And to realize uh, this is our Savior. This is, he is, this is why he is supreme. Nothing else can compare to it. The supremacy of Christ as Paul brings it forth. And then Paul uh, makes note, as you notice there at the end of verse 18 uh, of uh, chapter 1 there, and that final uh, phrase of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, verse 18, that final phrase of verse 18, that, and that is a reason word, that in all things he, that is Jesus, may have the preeminence. That word that is intended to give us the implication of Paul's description of Jesus. There's an implication to the fact that he is supreme in the way that he is described here. And he, the implications of it is in order that in all things he may have the preeminence. In other words, anyone who has the supremacy, uh, ought to all, this kind of supremacy, ought to then have the preeminence in our life. And more to the point, anyone who has the, this supremacy ought to ha then have the preeminence within our life. And, and, and the, the word preeminence, it speaks of the fact to be first. Anyone with this supremacy ought to then be preeminent, whether in the world or whether in the individual life. And as a result, the book of Colossians, it begs the question, both 2,000 years ago and today, and it is this, in the light of who and what he is, does he have the preeminence within my life to be first? Is he first? Because if our study in Colossians has not resulted in Jesus becoming preeminent in our lives as a result, then the time that we've spent in it has only been an intellectual exercise. 
It's only been a means of, of adding some more uh, amassing of, of knowledge uh, into our, our minds and ultimately a complete waste of time uh, practically in, in, in us individually because if he hasn't become preeminent by virtue of the study of this book, then we have missed the entire point of the book. The single great point that it is intended to accomplish and every single Christian who reads it and who studies it, whether in the, uh, the, uh, him getting the preeminence, whether in the rejection of human philosophy or the rejection of legalism or pseudo-spiritual experiences or asceticism, as was the case in the church of Colossae, and they needed to come back to the supremacy of Christ and give him the preeminence. But someone says, well, I don't deal with legalism. I don't deal with human philosophy. I'm not plagued by uh, uh, pseudo-spiritual experiences. I have no tendency at all in my life toward asceticism. That's just what Paul was applying the supremacy of Christ to in terms of an individual church. But it applies just as strongly if the, in the rejection, the sweeping away in our, our own lives, as Paul intended this letter to sweep those four things away from them, it's intended to sweep away in our own lives the rejection of any practice of willful sin or any uh, lukewarmness in our relationship with the Lord, or self-will, or tolerance of evil in our lives, or tolerance of evil around us, and so forth in our lives. And somebody might think, well, okay, I can see that, but I still need a little help understanding what the preeminence of Christ in my life will look like practically. And I don't know what you're like, but I'm a lot like that. Sometimes Paul says stuff, and I go, "Um, I'd like to buy a vow. (laughs) I mean, he's just, it's dense. And so here he's talking about all of these things, and and I say, well, can you give me some help in terms of what preeminence will look like practically in my life as a Christian? And Paul answers that question, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. First, he says that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, that we would learn God's will and know God's will from His Word. And then in verse 9, he says that we would recognize God's wisdom and spiritual understanding to be superior to everything else in life. And then in verse 10, that we would walk worthy of the Lord with the recognition that that is the only way to walk in a way that is fully pleasing to Him. And again in verse 10, that we would be fruitful in every good work and that we would be ever increasing in our knowledge of God and our personal relationship with God. The word that he uses here is talking about, uh, the knowledge talks about a knowledge that comes by experience. It means that we'll always be growing in our personal relationship and experience with God. And then in verse 11, that we would live a a supernatural life marked by his strength and by his power. And in verse 12, that we would live a life marked by uh, thankfulness toward God. And so here is the supremacy of Christ. 
but the supremacy of Christ has implications for the whole world. But the whole world isn't listening. But it has implications for the body of Christ. And we are listening. That the supremacy of Christ should always translate into His preeminence in our life. That He is first in my life. And that's the point of the book of Colossians. And if you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Talking about being raised in church or how much you know spiritually. That's never happened. You've never been born again by the Holy Spirit. Then this is a great time for that to happen right where you're seated. You have been created for a relationship with God. That is the truth. You can fight it, but you will fight it unsuccessfully all the days of your life. And until you're engaged in what you've been created for, you will never be satisfied in this life. You will never know peace. He's the end of your search. He's the end of the journey. And if you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, all you need to do is to be, is, is to be willing to repent of your sin and to say to God, God, I am a sinner. I admit it. I've been less than perfect all my life. And I believe that you are so holy that but one sin in my life has separated. If there, were, if there were but one sin in my life, it would separate me from a relationship with you. But I also believe that you so love the world, including me, that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever would trust in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I choose to trust in Jesus Christ right now. And if you do that from where you're seated, in your heart between you and God, God's Spirit will come into your life and you'll be born again. And then one of the beautiful things about our service this morning, you can make your first act of being born again the partaking of the Lord's Supper with us this morning as we turn to it now. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, and you say, I'm not ready to become a Christian yet, great. In the sense that we want you to be here, we want you to enjoy the rest of the service, but don't partake of the Lord's Supper. It's for Christians wouldn't do me any good to partake of the symbols of the bread and the blood, Jesus' body and blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, and not have made that sacrifice and that salvation that he died to purchase is not yet a reality in my life. I want, and you want, to partake of the Lord's Supper for the first time when you are born again. And so just let the cup pass from you and the bread pass by you. Uh, during this part of the service. And this morning, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, I want it to be a time where we simply acknowledge and we celebrate the supremacy of Christ in the world, who He is, and in our own lives. Because there is nothing about Jesus that Paul described that he has not been and is not to us. So much to celebrate of his supremacy. And then to make sure today that in the light of who he is and what he is, that our lives 
are surrendered to His preeminence. And so if the worship team will come forward and the men will come forward, we will pass out the symbols of Jesus' body and of His blood.